Hey everybody, thank you for tuning back in to the Project Sebastian podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Valona, director at Project Sebastian. And uh, this podcast is dedicated to all of your special needs, friends, families, uh, surgeons, medical staff, skiers, shadows, whatever you want to call them. Anyone that's helping special needs, that's living in the special needs community. And if you're a special needs person, even better. We're here to help you. We're here to help... uh, your family and friends find the support that is necessary to get the help that you need. And if you just want to just get on the show and just talk about life and about how you're a special needs person, or if you have been affected by special needs, just come on and share your story. I take everybody here. So today, we're having a very special guest, Dr. Jill Weimer, who's coming on the show, who's a very uh, special friend of mine, who's become um, somewhat of a of a, <laughs> a lifeline for me. She is a developmental neuroscientist and oversees the management and continued development of the transitional arm of the Sanford Research Center in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. This lady started at Sanford Research in 2009 as an assistant scientist, and her research program focuses on the molecular mechanisms, meditating development, and the cerebral cortex, and how disruption of these processes can lead to a whole host of neural pediatric disorders, including Batten disease, which is why I'm here, as well as the neurofibro, uh, I guess, mitosis type 1. Uh, Dr. Weimer grew up in north central Missouri and moved upstate New York, where she received her bachelor's degree and a PhD in neuroscience from the University of Rochester. She has completed her postdoctoral training in Neuroscience Research Center at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill with a focus in developmental neuroscience. Woo! Man, I've never had so many uh, amazing background titles in one paragraph in my life. That's a tongue twister, but show what? She's the sweetest person you'll ever meet. Uh, she is someone that I've come to rely on in helping my son. And uh, you'll hear from her today about how she's just doing a lot more than just these titles. She lives inside this community of special needs. She helps special needs families. And she herself is someone that you want to listen to. So stay tuned. Coming up, Dr. Jill Weimer will be here. Hello? Are you hey, there? can you hear me? <laughs> yep, I'm there. Let me see if I can figure out how to... As soon as it joined, it switched my um, to my car audio. Let me hang up on the car and just see if it switches over to my headphones. Okay, well, I, I can just call you right back if you want. Um, let me... I should be able to have a way that I can... Uh, app it, so I'm too slow to figure out how to do this. Let me here try. Okay. Can you hear me better now? <laughs> Can you hear okay. me? Yep. Now I'm okay. So <clears throat> we're recording right now, but I'm going to trim the video. So I'm just going to I'm just going to give you a little build up, and you're going to come on in. Okay. Did you hear that? Okay. Let's see. All right. I'm going to go in a few seconds here.
Okay, I'm going to go in five, four, three, two, one. Thank you for listening to the Project Sebastian podcast. As always, your host, Christopher Valona, director of Project Sebastian. I have a very special podcast session today for you. One of the first in the many, many series, the hopefully to come, of a doctor series uh, in the area of special needs. Today, a very near and dear friend of mine, Dr. Jill Weimer, PhD, is on the call today. Jill, are you with us? I am. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Yeah, I know. Are you uh, are you driving to to and from work? Uh, is that what we're hearing? I'm driving to well, Chicago, yeah. I'm glad to have caught you. I know you're a very busy woman. So uh, I'll give you a little bit of a, of a, of a quick background on Dr. D- Jill. Dr. Jill is uh, handling uh, one of a few different clinical trials in the Batten disease community. And she's agreed to come on today to not only discuss uh, what's happening in that area, but how special needs has affected her life. So uh, Dr. Jill... Can you give us a, just a quick background of who and what you do? Sure. So um, I'm a developmental neuroscientist by training. Um, so my lab is interested in understanding how the brain develops in normal people, normal, healthy um, individuals. And then um, when different genetic mutations happen, um, how that leads to different neurological disorders, different special needs, um, disease-related diseases. Um, so I actually, I grew up in uh, the rural Midwest. Um, I went to undergraduate in upstate New York at the University of Rochester. Um, and while I was there, the university was one of the few places in the U.S. that had an undergraduate degree in neuroscience um, when I started. And I had always been interested in biology Uh, But neuroscience in particular really piqued my interest. So um, I kind of focused in that area, and it's been my passion ever since. Um, I ended up getting my Ph.D. while at the University of Rochester, also in neuroscience. Um, And then I moved to the University of North Carolina uh, to do a postdoctoral fellowship in developmental neuroscience before joining the faculty at Sanford Research in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So you're you're currently doing most of your work at Sanford Research in Sioux Falls? Correct. That's where my research lab is and where my entire team is that focuses on uh, Batten's disease, um, neurofibromatosis type 1, um, and then uh, uh, fatal disorders that result from defects in oh, cortical wow. uh, You seem to be very, very busy these days with what's happening in, in a lot of different areas of, uh, I guess, new technology. Would you say that um, that is true? Yep, that's absolutely true. I think you know, our, our lab that started as really a basic uh, biology lab, understanding um, how the, the genes related to those diseases um, influence brain development. Um, but about three and a half years ago, our lab took a very, uh, very big shift, a step in the direction of translational and preclinical drug screening for those diseases. Um, and it really changed the pace that our lab works, the amount of um, science that we produce, and, and also vastly expanded the relationships that we have with their different um, patient advocacy right. groups, we'll, such, we'll as, such as your minute. foundation. I mean, um, for the listeners that don't really know the connection between uh, Dr. Weimer and I is that uh, we met uh, 
uh, by chance, um, as a cry of help, actually, if you really must, <laughs> if you must know about it, uh, basically, uh, all yeah. of my, my, my group of core listeners know that, uh, Sebastian Valona is currently diagnosed with Batten disease CLN8, and there is no current cure for this neurological disorder, which eventually ends up in a horrible death. Now, upon reaching out across the internet and the world, we, we came across, um, uh, Kristen and Gordon Gray through their foundation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how we got together for the listeners to understand the connection? Sure. So just to give folks a, sort of the background history on the Gray Foundation. So their daughters were diagnosed with a different right. form of Batten disease. So they have CLN6. Um, and each one of these diseases, even though um, at the cellular level and at the phenotype of the patients um, appear similar, um, biologically, they're very different diseases. So one, one cure or one treatment for one may not have uh, cross applications to another, particularly when you're using genetic approaches um, for treatments. So the, the Grays had actually started a foundation um, in August of 2015. Um, and at the time, I was the only scientist in the wow. United States working on CLN6 Batten disease. So they came to me and, and they said, you know, this, this disease is rare. We need your help. Um, and I said, you know, I don't do translational research. I don't, I don't design technologies for treatments. I don't design drugs. I'm not, you know, a medicinal chemist. This isn't what I do. And so they designed a program where they kind of put me at the middle as the Batten disease expert and surrounded me with scientists who were experts in all these other technologies. Um, so through their program, we were actually very successful in um, partnering with Nationwide Children's Hospital at the time, uh, an investigator named Brian Kaspar, um, who had developed a gene therapy um, to, um, to treat uh, spinal muscular atrophy. Um, and so Brian and I teamed up and we essentially copied and pasted what he had done for spinal and muscular atrophy, but put in CLN6 in, instead of the SMA gene. Um, and we're able to move that through the preclinical phases, get um, uh, FDA's blessing, and Nationwide was able to take that into a clinical trial in March of 2016. So it was a probably about six months after that or eight months after that, um, that you guys, uh, that Chris had reached out to the Grays um, and they said, you know, why don't you sit down with our scientific team and just talk through whether this is something that they'd want yeah. to take on? Is this something that they know about? You know, are, can, can you use a similar approach? And so it was around that time um, that we first yeah, met that's, you. That's, um, that was exactly how it happened. I mean, in a stroke of luck, um, this woman, uh, Kristen Gray, actually returned my calls uh, after multiple messages at her foundation and, um, you know, she was just very matter of fact, just like you said, a uh, woman with a mission to save her own children. So um, it, I find it extremely still, it's just baffling to me, uh, Jill, that back when you first heard from uh, the Grays that you were the only scientist in the world working on anything at Yep. And I would say I, I would say the United States, there are a number of scientists in Germany um, in England and in the UK that are working on uh, different aspects of CLN6. But at the time, we were the only ones really working on it in the United States. We were the there were even to this day, the only 
group that has funding wow. from the federal government to work on CLN6. Um, and so, you know, it was interesting, too, because we, we were interested in um, CLN8 and CLN3 because we think they do have a similar biology um, to CLN6. So when, when your team came to us um, and said, you know, is this something that you've considered working on? I was like, oh, yep. And we've been, right, we've right. just been and, so busy. We haven't gotten Because to it, it was yet. so new and there's just so much data and, and so much promise, really, because there was really no application to help any of these children at this time. They were just, what, what, what were they classified as before there was uh, some sort of a, a, I guess, research being done? Were these children like doom, doomed? Were they, okay. Yep, yeah, yep. I think many families were just told, you know, unfortunately there are, you know, there's palliative care. Um, you know, we can do some things that kind of uh, alleviate some of the side effects of the disease, but there's no treatments that are going to slow down the progression and there are ultimately no cures. And so, um, you know, many, many families are told just go home and enjoy the years that you have with your kid because ultimately they're going to succumb to this disease in, you know, so between as a, the as age a, of 10 and 15 as a doctor, years of age. In a research group doing what you do and uh, learning, you know, all that you can in pediatrics and rare disease. I mean, did did your colleagues tell you that? And and if so, how did you feel about that type of statement? Yeah, when when families would tell me that, it's you know, like it, you, you, I often try to put myself in their shoes, and I cannot imagine being told that about your child. Um, and but at the same time, as a scientist, remember at that point in my career. Um, I was doing basic science and, you know, we, we always have sort of this ultimate dream that you tell yourself that what you're doing is going to impact patients. But in reality, what most basic scientists do, we never actually see our developments move into something that's going to impact and treat patients. Um, and so for me, the real, like, you know, eye-opening moment was when I actually kind of turned that corner and said, hey, what we're doing really could impact these kids and we really could um, come up with treatments. But what we realized was the way that we were going about it, we would never have treatments in these kids' lifetimes. And so, you know, we we had, um, even before the grace come along, came along, we were doing some, uh, a, a little bit of drug screening, but essentially our approach was that we would Based on the biology and understanding what CLN6 did, we would start a drug screening in mice, and it would take about two years for us to complete that screening of that one drug, and then it would fail, right? And then we would start over on the next drug. Okay, well, that one didn't work, so let's think through the biology a little bit, and let's change it. Let's switch to a different drug. So we'd start the next drug, and that would take two years, and then that would fail, Right. And so we realized that we had to be much smarter about this, the way that we did science and that we needed to, at the very least, be able to eliminate drugs from our pipeline uh, much more rapidly. So one of the things that we really focused on is coming up with more streamlined um, ways of doing preclinical pre drug screening so that we could either more rapidly eliminate drugs or more rapidly move them along in the pipeline and be much more efficiently. So the exciting thing is that today, um, you know, even it, if I just remove the gene therapy work that we do and we just look at pharmacological agents and, and small molecules, at any given time, my lab mm. is pr 
probably screening 25 drugs now. So we've gone from screening one at a time to actually being able to do mouse studies and human cell line studies on as many as, you know, like uh, 25 drugs. And that doesn't even count doing things like high throughput screening where you're actually screening thousands of drugs at a time. Um, so, and I think, I think that, you know, by doing smarter huh. science, we can get treatments for these kids. Very um, true. We just have to be and, smarter and how we so think about we things. we can just kind of like give our listeners the gravity of uh, just, let's just say, just the one area that you're studying, which is Batten disease. When you told us earlier that there's one remedy can't work for others, how many other variants or disease types are there in the Batten family? Yep, so Batten's is actually a, a disease family that has um, as many as 13 different um, forms of it. And each one of those forms is caused by a different genetic mutation. Um, so each one of them is really gonna require its own unique cure if you focus on the genetics. Now, one of the things... Oh, hopefully we'll get her back. <laughs> She just kind of fell down this dark hole. Um, I tell you what we'll do is uh, we'll, there she is. Um, kind of in, in parallel, when I talk about these drug screenings, started to do yeah, is think about time. Um, some <laughs> of the about cellular everybody. symptoms that we see. There so you like are. For in, uh, yeah, we just had a little bit of technical difficulties. I understand you're driving. Did I lose you, Chris? Cellular doesn't work all that good. Oh, there she is. Uh, are you there? Hello. Did I lose you, Chris? Jill. Can you hear me now? Me now. Hey, Jill. Yes. Sorry Welcome about that. <laughs> it's all good. Welcome back to the show. Uh, before you were garbled up here in the cellular death of doom as we called it um you were talking about the different numbers of variants yep and how and and you know i believe you said there's like 13 or 14 that are categorized but they're but they're labeled by number is that yep. what you were saying yep so there's there's 13 different forms um and they're each one of them has a different genetic cause so there's a different uh. gene so they're they have sort of slightly different biology and so if you're if you think about using something like a gene therapy each one of them will need their own treatment. You can't use uh, a gene therapy for CLN, let's say, right? But the one thing that we have started thinking about in the lab is sort of common cellular changes. So for instance, in the brain of all Batten's disease patients, the immune cells of the brain that are called microglia kind of go haywire. And so can we find drugs that um, make the microglia happier and make them behave a little bit better that we could use across all forms of that disease. So in terms of the pharmaceutical agents that I said our lab is exploring, we think that a lot of these will actually have cross application across other forms of batten disease. So even if we're studying CLN2 with a certain drug, it might actually now become valuable uh, for CLN2. That would be amazing that we could all, you know, share each type of platform yep. and data research to uh, come up with a faster, a more quicker solution, yes? Yep, and I think the other thing too to consider is about, you know, when you look at modern medicine and other disease areas, you know, you think about a patient with breast cancer. 
there is not one cure all for breast right. cancer, right? So each, you know, there's, there's as many as four or more types of breast cancer genetically. Um, they have different genetic mutations. Um, and so first you have to figure out what unique genetic mutation that breast cancer patient has. And then even when you do, those patients are put on a, co a, a combination therapy. They receive a, a cocktail of chemotherapies that might have multiple different drugs. They might receive radiation. So, you know, we're, we're naive to think that in these rare diseases that there is going to be one cure, one treatment. So our lab is focused on, you know, even as we develop gene therapies that seem to be um, beneficial, what else can we add to them? How, how can we make it right. better? No, I, I think it's important that um, we all start collaborating and sharing the data so that we can, you know, get to, a, like I said, a quicker solution because um, I remember when we first spoke, you probably heard the desperation in my voice, if not uh, my, my yep. ex-wife's voice. And uh, meeting Sebastian, I'm sure you probably had a connection with him about an understanding, yep. as well as the other children that uh, um, you deal with, which, you know, is really why we're here. You know, Dr. Weimer, you know, this is a, a podcast about the real talk about, you know, our special needs families and how they deal with the day to day challenges and the struggles. Uh, and we share a lot of the triumphs along the way. I, I have to I'm going to switch so we can get a more humanistic approach to who you really are. How many people in your life are really suffering from a special needs environment that you deal with, do you think? Oh, I would, several hundred kids probably, and adults. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, and it's, it's, a lot of it has been through my research that I become connected with these families. Um, and, and having that human element, that human connection makes this um, even more rare, uh, real for mm -hmm. me. Um, when I can see, you know, what we're doing and how these families are suffering. Um, and so it's, I would actually say because of my work, um, I interact with probably more than the average person um, on a regular basis. And each one of them holds a special place in my heart. Right. Um, are you affected personally? Do you have any children of your own? Do you have uh, family members that have any special needs families in their lives? Or? And I... It, I have I have cousins that have children with rare diseases, um, so I've seen the impact even that it has on family members. Um, but even some of my very close friends, um, you know, it's uh, fortuitous. But one of my very best friends um, in Rochester, um, she mentioned to me um, years ago that her cousin's father, um, her her uncle by marriage, um, had passed away from a rare genetic disorder. And I didn't ask what it was. I, you know, I was sorry you lost your uncle um, and we move on. And a couple of years later, um, his, his, her cousin finds out that she has the same genetic mm. disorder. Wow. Um, and I, I said, what is this? You know, what, what are they suffering from? And ironically, they had the adult form of CL6 bat oh, wow. disease um, that's called type A cuffs disease. Huh. Um, and so... You know, it, as we were going through developing that therapy um, and that gene therapy and doing all that work, and, and I will tell you, like, you know, for that program, we worked around the clock um, to, to beat timelines to be able to get an effective treatment um, in, a, in a short, short amount of time, but also making sure that we were doing good science and not cutting any corners. Um, and... One of my excitements in doing that was I wanted to go to my best friend's mother um, and let her know that we had developed a ther therapy that, although 
it was too late for her niece and it was too late for her brother-in-law um, that we had developed this therapy. And unfortunately, my, my best friend's mother passed away about a month before that clinical oh, trial wow. opened. Um, so it was, you know, like it's super exciting for me that we had crossed the finish line. But, you know, because of this impact that it had on mm -hmm. a close uh, family friends, I was like even more excited about what we were doing and didn't get the opportunity to share the news. Yeah, that's always um, a, a tough a tough pill to swallow. I mean, in your field, it's probably a lot more double-edged swords than uh, people might think, you know, being that uh, here you are in a position to use your your research, your knowledge, your dedication for good, but sometimes it just doesn't come as fast as we would like it. Yeah, and I would say, Chris, too, that leaves us scientists feeling over and over and over like we have failed you and that we have failed the patients. Right. Um, because, you know, we are working as hard as we can, but, you know, like it, science takes years yeah. um, you know, get to, getting to these discoveries. And, and you guys don't have years. Your kids do not uh, have yeah, years. I mean, a, a, lot of, and, a lot of other diseases are in the same problem and we don't have time. And I, I got to yeah. tell you, I'll be honest with you, you know, <laughs> don't hate me, but I cursed you. I cursed the team. And I, yep. I, I have these moments where I just say, fuck everybody. I'm just so angry that I can't speed yep. this up or I can't control this, which is really all the fear based that we already have because we can't control people, places or things. But God damn you, you know, here you are able to cure a child and why isn't it happening? So um, yep. I remember, you know, both you and Kristen Gray saying, you know, listen, you, you, you can speed up people, but you can't speed up science just be patient and you know everybody will tell you we don't have time we don't we can't be patient so it's it's frustrating um having uh the knowledge that i do i don't wish this on anybody having this horrible background and this knowledge of these horrible diseases but uh i'm able to take what i have learned and uh able to start a type of online support group such as you know on uh, facebook and twitter and instagram and uh, we often talk about the, the scientific community and the teams and, and how great they are. And, and, you know, sometimes we beat you guys up and it, it must feel it must yep. feel like that's part of your job <laughs> just just to take all of our <laughs> shit. huh? Yeah, well, and I uh, that's what I say, too, is like I, I understand your frustration and I and I get where you guys are coming from. You know, sometimes I have to step back and say, let me do my job like, you know, standing here and, and, and dealing with the emotions, like I get it, but I need to go and do my job because we're wasting time. Right. Right. Um, right. <laughs> so, and here, and here I am and, blocking and, an hour out of your day, taking you away. <laughs> and it's, no, and I, it's, it's, I, I think actually though, what you do is very important because we do need to educate the community about what's going on, about what families go through when they're in these situations. And, and for the families, one of the biggest things besides having the science moving fast is having a support system and having a network that you can talk to and that you can bounce ideas off of and you can get opinions and you can talk through these things. And, and then, then you don't have to call and yell at me. <laughs> well, um, I do appreciate you taking the call and the time. And, uh, um, you know, you and I have always agreed about that same topic about sharing and creating awareness on every level and, and you and i did the the dr drew podcast over a year ago uh where both the the actually the the entire uh conference the call of that if you will everybody said the same thing you just got to be patient got to be patient even dr drew was very helpful 
in understanding, you know, it seems that, you know, when doctors sit down together, they understand each other because they've been through that, uh, that ringer, if you will. So, I mean, are you jaded yet, Jill? In your No, I love, I love what I do. And I would not, you know, I would not change what I do. Um, I would change if we could make things faster. And, you know, it's one of the things when you say like science takes time, you know, we have to be able to test these treatments in animal models of the disease and animals have to age, right? Like I can't make a mouse uh, age faster. Um, And so one of the things like on the opposite side of our lab, besides the therapy screening is we try to focus on making better tools. So can we actually make animal models that are better and that have a more aggressive form of the disease so that we can shorten those timelines and have clearer answers? Right. Well, I mean, uh, I got to tell you that, that no good deed goes unpunished, as they say, and vice versa. But I got to ask you, I mean, in your own personal life, do you find that this job weighs heavy? As a, as a doctor, I mean, honestly, I mean, you're always, I mean, it, honestly, it took six months for you to get on my podcast. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. You're... And I feel, I feel like I'm pulled in a thousand different directions. And, um, you know, some of that is probably my own doing. I work around the clock. You know, people say you have to have a work-life balance. But I, I always tell people, uh, particularly other, other females in science, that every person has a different work-life balance. And, and you, may, you may love leaving work and going rock climbing, but my hobby is science. <laughs> so my, hobby, my hobbies are my job. Um, and I, as much as I try to walk away from it, at the end of the day, when I fall asleep at night, I see those kids that I'm like, okay, if I just put in a few more hours, maybe we can get closer to a treatment or a cure. And because that becomes my passion and my driving force. And it's, you know, my husband understands that, he sees that, he understands that what I'm doing is actually helping right. people. Um, and it's, you know, that becomes my work-life balance. That is my life, that's my passion. Um, and it's what drives me and it's what I love doing from the time I wake up in the morning till I go to sleep at night. And like with any career, I'm not gonna say that it doesn't have its lows, it has its highs. Um, I won't, I won't lie that there aren't days that I go home and cry my eyes out because it's just been the most frustrating day. Um, but there's also those joyous days when, you know, you know, we get the call from our, our, our team of physicians at nationwide that a new clinical trial is opening or somebody in my lab comes to me and says like, you know, it's that eureka moment where we've made a big breakthrough, um, that's really going to help us get to the next step. Um, you know, what you hope for are those balances. Sure. And so you take, you take the, you take the lows with that. So, so you mentioned you were married. How long have you been married now? Uh, we've been married for four years together for 10. Um, we actually, uh, started dating right before I took my position in, um, in Sioux Falls and started my lab. And my husband actually works in nuclear power. Oh. So get that. We're a brain <laughs> scientist and a nuclear wow. engineer. Um, we get a lot of, we're the butt, butt of a lot of jokes, but in the entire time that we've actually been together and married, we've actually never lived in the same spot because my lab is in South Dakota and he works in oh, Chicago. Wow. And so I actually commute on top of all the chaos and working around the clock, I commute back and forth. So that's why like, you know, today I appreciate you taking the, the time to let me set this up while I was actually in the car driving to Chicago. Wow. Uh, Cause I know that that's like downtime for me. <laughs> well, I, I, I utilize every minute of my life. Well, clearly it's not downtime because <laughs> we're talking about that. Well, maybe, maybe this is your coffee. Maybe this is what you love to do. Exactly. 
Yeah, this is my okay, coffee break. Well, awesome. So, okay. So, in your opinion, how many people do you think that are suffering or dealing with special needs children today? Oh, millions, millions. And, and I, the thing is, too, that, you, you know, we often just think of um, the immediate family members, the parents. But, you know, we need to think about what special needs do to siblings. You know, it, I'm sure with Sebastian's uh, siblings, this has completely changed their lives, yeah. right? Like, you know, they have to recognize that his needs sometimes are going to have to come before theirs. Um, and so, you know, extended family. Sometimes, too, like, you know, the, the primary caregivers or the, the caregivers may not even be the, the parents. And there may be, you know, uh, uh, other people who live in the house with the family. So it extends beyond just even the immediate parents. So I am certain that it's millions and millions of people just in the United mm. States that um, are affecting, uh, affected by special needs. Uh, yeah, no, uh, we talked about that uh, on one of my podcasts. Um, it's called the ripple effect. And uh, actually had... Sebastian's younger brother on as a segment. You can catch that on uh, yeah. on our show here. You can catch us on iTunes or Spotify. Or uh, we were just launched into almost twenty different platforms. Um, nice. And it's uh, it's been incredible because it, you just never know, you know, where <laughs> where you're gonna be uh, when you start something like this. Um, you know, it's a yep. it's just incredible. So I mean. The, the thing that uh, it still shocks me is that how many people really want to get on here and talk. And um, yep. they want to share their story about their kids or about their business or their life or their website and how they can you know connect and help others. So with that said, is there something that you want to tell our listeners that, that you're excited about, that you're working on right now that, that people can get involved with or how they can support the Weimer lab at all? Yep. So, um, you know, as you know, we partner close with Chris's foundation and with the, the CLN8 foundations. Um, and so that supports financially a lot of the research that we do on CLN8. Um, so if people have a real passion for um, CLN8 bat disease, you know, making charitable donations to those foundations are very, very important. Um, from my side, one of the um, one of the still the big limitations that I see is that in the rare disease space in particular, we don't have the luxury of, of having a lot of patients. So when we design clinical trials, we want to make sure that every patient is getting the potential treatment, um, which means that we really have no what we call scientists call controls. We don't have anything to compare the treatment to. So how do you know it's being effective if you're not actually comparing it to an untreated child? Um, and so what we rely on is something called natural history. Um, and so this is actually a way that we look back at all the patients in the history uh, of, of disease diagnosis that have had CLN8 bat disease and say, what does their natural history look like? And can we compare this to the normal progression of the disease? And a lot of people, a lot of scientists don't think they're so focused on a treatment and a cure that they don't think about the natural history. Um, so one of the programs that I work really, really closely with and was really dear to my heart at Sanford is a program called CORDS or Coordination of Rare Diseases at Sanford. Um, and CORDS is actually, rather than saying to you as a CLN8 foundation, go out, focus, raise money and set up a natural history study, track where all the patients are. 
Accords and Sanford do this for you for free. And so it's a patient registry where a patient with any uh, genetic disorder, rare genetic disorder, can go in and register as a participant. Um, and then depending on what uh, foundations we're partnered with and specific rare disease teams we're partnered with, there will be disease-specific questionnaires that start to build some of that natural history data. So, you know, as a, as a, a father of a patient with CLN8, you can go into there and you can, you can enter CV's information and you can log all of his information and start to create that natural history for Sebastian. Um, and so that's one thing. And then how does that get used, right? So it's, it's not just a repository for data. Scientists and clinicians can then uh, request to access that data. So if they want to actually get a natural history snapshot of, say, tubular sclerosis, they can go in and say, okay, Cords, I want to make a research request to pull all the data for tubular sclerosis and start to build a natural history study. So that's one thing that I do want to plug, you know, that, that you guys uh, shouldn't be investing your time um, in building these registries and tracking every patient and knowing what precise genetic mutation they have and tracking the natural history study. Let somebody else do that for free um, and, and reach out to the team at Cords and let them do that for you. Wow, that's, in, that's incredible. I never really heard about that until today. We actually were talking about that with uh, uh, Julie Vertello. Um, uh, Mila's, yep. I think, yep. uh, Hope for Mila or Mila's, yep. yep. The CLN7. Yep. Yeah, so she was telling me that she wants a registry um, for future. So this is great. I'll be happy to uh, pass along this information. Um, uh, so I appreciate you, Jill, coming on and being real with us for a half hour or so while you're driving home to your husband, to your other life. And uh, I pre appreciate, <laughs> you know, you being extremely uh, real with us in the sense that Hey, you know, this is, this is what I do. This is my passion. And, you know, yes, I, I, I know Sebastian and believe me from the bottom of my heart, you know, uh, Terry and myself, uh, Terry's my ex-wife. Um, we, uh, we're extremely grateful to have met you and the team. Uh, and we hope that, uh, the progression of a cure for all bat disease variants is here within our lifetime, as they would say. Thanks for having me, Chris. All right. Everybody, you've heard the awesome discussions today with uh, my friend, Dr. Jill Weimer, who is currently doing pediatric and rare disease research out at Sanford Research. In o it's in Ohio, yes? No, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Sioux Falls, South Dakota. You're I'm fine. hoping to go see you guys soon when we do our clinical trials. So yes. You guys need to make sure that that happens for us. And uh, you, you guys yep. are, the, are the friends with Amicus. You guys make that shit happen so we can start the ball rolling yep. and we get more people for you so you guys can, you know, come up with an amazing cure. So, Dr. Jill, thank you so much for uh, being on today. Uh, I look forward to seeing you very soon, if not in person, then, Thanks, then on Chris. a conference call, of course, with the team. So, all right, everybody, coming up. We'll have a recap here with uh, our good friend, Dr. Jill Weimer out of Sanford Research, only here on the Project Sebastian podcast. Thank you. Be right back, everybody. Thank you. All right, Jill. Thank you so much for that. Okay. Oh, no problem. I appreciate it. It's going to be great. I'm going to trim it up here, and I'll probably have it out there by Monday or Tuesday. Okay. Yeah, just shoot me a link to it, too. Um, 
and I'll look on, or I can look on iTunes too, and then I'll share it out on social media as well. That's great. And I can use uh, this uh, biopic on Sanford. Okay. Yep. Yep. Or I can, if you want me to, I can send you a bio and a picture yeah. too, if you want. Yeah, do that. Just. Yeah, I'll, I'll have Lindsay do that this awesome. evening. Okay, well, cool. Well, I got to go get Sebi and put his ass into the electronic bed. And uh, <laughs> he loves it. <laughs> I can't explain it, but he loves it. it uh, I forget oh, what it's called, the, the, the PDMF or PMF bed. I can't remember it, but uh, it's the oh. electronic pulse bed, as they call it. Oh, it's the one that gives them, like, there's just the little shocks to essentially get the nervous yeah. system yeah. fired up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't understand it, but he says, you yeah. know what? I just, it feels good and I feel better. So, good. Whatever works. Good. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. We'll tell him I will. Say bye. Thank you so much, sweetie. Thanks, Thank you. Chris. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Project Sebastian podcast. Rare Disease Day, February 28th. Rolling out with Jill Weimer. What a great interview. Thank you, Dr. Jill Weimer, for taking the time. We had a tremendous amount of technical difficulties, and I don't care. You know, I got to tell you that this is how I do it. I just run my audio raw. A lot of people don't like it. A lot of people kind of, like, don't understand it. But for me, you know, I'm just doing my thing here using the anchor podcast i hope you guys enjoy it you know i'm not changing anything (laughs) uh maybe they need to learn how to trim some video out but uh yeah this is just how we roll man project sebastian we just uh give it to you straight up raw a little music in the background we just run it out so i hope you guys enjoyed that and that's my timer because i got to get the dinner on the table now all right hope you guys enjoyed your podcast listening with dr jill weimer it is rare disease day february 28th 2019 please 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 if you know of anybody that is in the special needs community in the rare disease community reach out to them today whenever you hear this it doesn't matter what day just reach out to them tell them that you are there for them that you care donate to their cause help them but the best thing i can tell you to do is just give them a hug It's the most amazing thing in the world. All right, I got to go. This is Christopher Valona, director of Project Sebastian for the Project Sebastian podcast. And I'll see you next time, everybody. Thank you for listening.